Welcome to the 100th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, we will talk about Major League Baseball free agency and talk about this past week's college basketball action. But before we jump in, Patrick, I want to congratulate you on reaching this 100th podcast. The podcast, the website, the social media, all the content is something that you've created on your own, spent many dozens of hours per week. It's probably an understatement on it. Um, and the fact that we have done 100 podcasts without missing any, um, two times a week, so it's our 50th week without missing any despite travel, despite the demands of school, college applications, and sometimes you're not feeling well, really, and me not being here with you, is a testimony to your dedication and hard work. So uh, proud of you. Uh, I want to congratulate you, and I don't know if you want to say any words about our 100th podcast. If not, we'll jump right in. Well, I will say uh, there have been 99 prior episodes of uh, of what I thought was good analysis, but looking back on it, I, I, I think uh, I sit with Stephen A. in the boat immediately. What I can think of is uh, how wrong I was about the Chicago Bulls when we were talking about free agency, but... Uh, that's just one of the bad things. I can also think about what I said about the Buccaneers heading into the Super Bowl that they eventually won. But uh, while there have been some bad takes, I think recently, especially in my predictions, there have been plenty of good ones. And I think uh, I think we'll I think you know you can't necessarily make good analysis without hitting and missing most of the time. There's never going to be a way to kind of sit down the middle and not get things wrong ever. And also because you'll never get anything right if you never get anything wrong. Uh, so. Gotta, gotta go out there sometimes and be a little bit bold with it, and I'll say, uh, I might do something relating to, in the first 100 episodes, maybe the top five worst takes, top five best takes, we'll see, um, and, uh, we'll see what happens there, because, you know, we actually have, with how much we've recorded, the only, I think the only season we've never previewed necessarily, and, and that has finished is the NFL, because at the end of the, the first year we did, or the first podcast we started was in the late weeks of the NFL season. And then uh, this year, obviously, the NFL isn't finished yet, but pretty much most of a college football season uh, gotten all the way to the end of the year in terms of regular season. So my whole full predictions there are there. I can think of a few teams that I was definitely it's wrong about. It's been a surprising there. year. Been uh, a really yeah, it's been a very season. interesting year. Historical, but, historic upsets. Yeah, but uh, in, in general, I might do something like that, or we might even turn it into a special podcast episode maybe in the middle of the week or something at some point. But... We'll see what happens. Uh, it'll take a little bit to research that and really find the truly worst ones because I know there are some pretty bad ones that I've had, but also some pretty good ones, some pretty bold ones. I know, to give myself credit, I did say that if Georgia beat Clemson, they would find their way in the playoff this year, and that looks, I well, I mean, it's 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 it's, it's happening. It's, even if they lose on, on Saturday, they will be in the playoff. So I'm very proud of that one, I can say that much. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of work, but uh, I think I've had fun throughout all of it. Well, and as you said, um, you know, they always say nothing ventured, nothing lost. You know, you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, all that stuff. you got to put yourself out there. So kudos to you for putting yourself out The best three-point shooter of all time is shooting 42%. There we go. Um, kudos to you for putting yourself out there um, and for putting in all the hard work. So with that being said, we'll stop patting ourselves and mainly you on the back, even though you deserve it, and we'll jump right in with a look at Major League Baseball free agency. And I'll just fire some questions at you, starting with, what teams in your mind were the most surprising big spenders so far? Well, speaking of being prepared to be wrong, I will go out and say that I am not in. Uh, I am not thinking that what the Rangers did was smart by any means whatsoever. 
Uh, Corey Seager is a great player. So is Marcus Simeon. Ten years, $325 million for Corey Seager and seven years, 175 for Marcus Simeon. Uh, they also spent uh, $5.2 million on Cole Calhoun in right field. And then four years, $56 million deal that they agreed to with John Gray. Uh, I don't, I'm actually, honestly, out of all four of the signings, John Gray feels like the best one in terms of value and kind of their their time frame to me because I think over the course of 10 years, any team can sell you to we're going to be contending at this point or over the course of even seven years, I think the same thing. So they can sell Simeon and Seager on it as much as they want. And Corey Seager talked about in his press conference, his introductory press conference to the Rangers, that one of the things that he was surprised about was how all in the Rangers were and that Simeon signing really kind of uh, solidified that for him. And obviously, that's the big one to uh, to more casual baseball fans. But I think if you're Corey Seager, who's played against John Gray a lot, you also recognize the quality of a player who's played in your division a lot. Um, and you know how big of a signing that might be, too. So he definitely has a different view on it. But um, I just think it was a little bit strange because... Ten-year signings, seven-year signings. If you're if you're signing guys for that long, at some point you're going to have a good year if you're going to spend money at all. Uh, the only way you're never going to be good in a seven to ten-year span is if you literally do not try to be good. But this John Gray signing, I think, is interesting because if you're going off of a four-year period, I don't see this team contending next year, and the year after maybe not. And once you start getting into a year and a half more of team control, that's where you start getting into the territory where you're trading a player because they have enough team control. A perfect example of that was Trey Turner to the Dodgers this year uh, in the Max Scherzer trade, which we'll talk about Scherzer later. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the range. As soon as you're, as soon as the, the guy you have has a, a full year left or just half a year left or a full year and, and some change on it, that's when you get into the territory of he's about to be traded so I just think it's confusing that after after the Rangers got last place in their division, the Mariners barely missed the playoffs. The Angels were better than the Rangers without Mike Trout for more than half the season. I'm pretty sure probably two-thirds or more of the season. That now is the time they think they're going to contend. I get it, new stadium, whatever. But the new stadium has been there for two years. So if it's about the new stadium, they're contending pretty late in my opinion. Uh, and I don't think you could have been anticipating Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon being available, so it's not like this was a very long-term plan, because until the Dodgers got Trey Turner, I think a lot of people still thought that the Dodgers might re-sign him, and Marcus Simeon was not a big name until what he did in Toronto with his ridiculous season where he finished top three in MVP voting this year. Uh, so it's just a little confusing for me from the Rangers. I mean, I love to see teams that are bad spend a lot of money because it'll make it more interesting. When you have more middle-of-the-pack teams, it's always more fun to watch, uh, I just think in general that's a good thing. Obviously, we had the Yankees and the Red Sox and the wild card to begin with, so it's not like the AL is lacking great teams, but it's very odd to watch kind of this whole thing where you have the Dodgers and the Giants and you think the winner of the Dodgers-Giants is going to be the winner of the World Series. Obviously, the Braves ended up winning, but really, even until the Braves had won, no one really felt like any of the other teams in the NL had much of a chance just because the Dodgers, well, the Giants had such a well-constructed roster and the Dodgers spent so much money. I like to see this from teams that they are spending that money, but we'll have to see how effective it is. I just don't think the Rangers are close enough to contending. I just don't see, if you look at their roster, you look at Seager and Simeon and you, you look at them and you're like, that's a great that's a great start to a roster. But beyond them, there's not much there. And I don't really think John Gray, even though he has an inflated ERA from playing at Coors Field, I don't think it's necessarily... 
he's necessarily the quality of an ace. And they only have, you know, one or two pitching prospects to bring up. So I don't know who their fourth and fifth starters are going to be. I have no idea who's going to be in the outfield besides Cole Calhoun. Uh, They traded also, the other thing that was interesting that they did is they traded for Billy McKinney and Zach Rex from the Dodgers, but let Billy McKinney go. And also they gave the Dodgers cash after they spent $500 million. So overall, I'm a little bit confused by the Rangers, but I am very, very surprised that they ended up being a big spender. Uh, This was a heavy, heavy shortstop class, and you assume that the Yankees were going to get one. Maybe the Dodgers would even venture back into Seager knowing how many shortstops there were. You thought maybe a team like the Tigers would eventually get one, which they did. You thought the Astros, I already said the Yankees. You thought maybe the Rockies might get story back because of that. You thought maybe the Giants or the Cubs. And all of a sudden, the Rangers steal two of the guys who are on that market as shortstops in a very val- at a very valuable position in a year where there are a lot of high-value guys in that position. So I was a little bit surprised to see that. And also, um, just in general, though, I will say surprised, but I like it. All right, anybody else surprising you? Uh, the other team I will mention, the Mariners. The, I, I They only qualify for big spenders just because they typically don't spend like any money whatsoever. Uh, but they signed AL Cy Young winner Robbie Ray to a five-year, $115 million deal. And they also traded for Adam Frazier uh, from the Padres. So some, I, I, I mean, the one thing that I will say about the, Ran- about the Mariners is that when you compare them to the Rangers, they probably think they're an ace and... A second baseman, I guess, is their idea away from being in the playoffs because guess what? They were a game out of the playoffs last year. Yes, they were tied with the Blue Jays too, but they just stole the Blue Jays' best best pitcher. So evidently to them, that that seems like they're closing the gap. And in my opinion, they there is really no gap between those two teams. I mean, the Mariners had a very bad run differential and it could be said that the Blue Jays overall were a better team. Their roster, especially offensively, is ridiculous. But overall, I just have to say, the Mariners missed the playoffs by one game, and the Rangers missed the playoffs by, like, 35. So it is good that finally, even though they are barely a team that doesn't spend that much, at least they're not doing what the Tampa Bay Rays are doing, which is even after being in the World Series, the Rays barely spent anything. The Mariners are saying, we barely missed the playoffs. Let's end our playoff drought. Let's spend some money. I like it. All right. Well, and and the Rangers might be spending the big long-term contracts knowing that some of the prospects they may have gotten in some of these recent trades are going to take time to develop. Um, so maybe that's their plan, whereas, like you said, the Mariners think they're really close. They just need a few pieces. But I thought it was interesting, though, that when we talk about it, and we'll get to some more pitchers later, but, uh, you know, Robbie Rice signs for five years. They get, a, they get a four-year guy, which I think was kind of interesting. I thought that when I heard that the Rangers were interested in spending, I thought maybe they'd get one of Seager and Simeon or maybe Javi Baez or... or or Carlos Correa, who's comfortable playing in Texas already. I think that's what I was kind of thinking they were going to do, and then get a big starting pitcher alongside that who was going to be there for a while and ace to anchor their staff and to kind of teach the young guys how it, how it goes, I guess is kind of my thing. So it was just strange to me that they spent on shortstop and second base and then kind of went a little more short-term with the starting pitching. But I do agree with you that the, the prospects are definitely part of it, but that's why I thought that they would be thinking maybe starting pitcher as, as the big, big, big signing for 300 million. All right, well, let's move to some teams that you think were the least surprising to be spending a lot of money so far in free agency. Well, the Mets got a new ownership team, and the first thing they said is we're going to spend a bunch of money, and last year they traded for Francisco Lindor and then Javi Baez at the trade deadline and made it clear they were going to spend a lot of money. Uh, I think they did exactly what we thought they were going to do, which is spend a lot of money. 
They signed Max Scherzer to three years, $130 million, the highest AAV, average annual value, um, for any pitcher so far, or for any, I think for any player right now on any contract at $43 million. Uh, uh, I saw a joke that uh, this, his contract is backloaded, which is, or front loaded, sorry, which is nice because uh, I believe next year he makes $43,333,334 instead of $43,333,333. So the Mets have an extra dollar to spend two years from now, which is very nice in case they uh, in case they need that extra spending. Maybe they can sign someone for $100 million uh, with $1 attached to it. I don't know why they would, but maybe they will. Um, besides that, and jokes aside... They also signed center fielder Starling Marte to four years, $78 million. Mark Canna, a left fielder, two years, $26.5 million. And Eduardo Escobar, two years, $20 million. Really just good signings all around. I really don't have anything wrong with the Mets signings. If this team isn't good, then the franchise is just cursed. I think that's pretty much the simple explanation for what happens with this team. They now have arguably the two best starting pitchers in all of baseball uh, with DeGrom and Scherzer right now. And if you look at it since 2014, they are the top pitchers by ERA outside of Clayton Kershaw, who, as we know, was injured last year and is aging. Uh, and really, I mean, that that's crazy to even be to to have two guys in the same category as only Clayton Kershaw being the only other guy that's separating them, and they're on the same team. That is ridiculous. Uh, they did give up Noah Syndergaard. They did. They probably won't be getting. Well, actually, we know they won't be getting back Marcus Stroman because he signed with the Cubs. Um, but. So they did lose some stuff, and it, it, we shouldn't neglect that. But at the same time, DeGrom and Scherzer will be a formidable rotation because when you also look at it, their starting rotation for the second half of last year when DeGrom was out included Stroman and uh, and it did not include Syndergaard in it. So basically, they lost one starter that actually played last year and got two back when you consider DeGrom coming back from injury. And Stroman for Scherzer is a big upgrade. I mean, Stroman's a great pitcher, but Scherzer is on another level. So, uh, and he also has a very good record at City Field in his career. And I think just in general, he knows that division well because he's played for the Nationals for so long. Uh, Nationals fans are probably very upset that he came back to the East Coast to play for a divisional rival. Um, but overall, good signings by the Mets. If they can get Conforto back in right field, they have a really, really good outfield offensively. Uh, and look, they need offense. So getting a guy who led both the AL and the NL in steals, and Mark Canna, who's also pretty, who's also a pretty decent offensive player himself, that those are good moves. And uh, Eduardo Escobar was a big trade deadline target because of his bat, uh, and they got him too. So I think just overall, they have a good two-year run going here. Uh, they also obviously have Pete Alonso, the home run derby king. So they have a lot of offense that we that previously they didn't have. That was their biggest problem last year, and. Uh, Maybe the guys that they had as their main starters last year can kind of become, you know, defensive replacements, a game here and there for, for lefties or righties, depending on the matchup, uh, that being Brandon Nimmo and, you know, Jeff McNeil maybe in, in place of Eduardo Escobar. Um, but overall, I think if Francisco Lindor gets back on track and you have Pete Alonso playing how he's played with, with Starling Marte, this team is a very well-put-together team. It's going to have a pretty good, I mean... The Mets are not a good offensive team. I think we already know that. But with these three additions, I think they can at least become an average kind of one through five lineup. And that will be good enough to hold up with DeGrom and Scherzer to become an actually really good team. All right. Who else? Uh, I'll go with the Tigers. And I know it sounds interesting that I'm putting them in least surprising. But I said it throughout the entire year that if they were willing to spend the money, they had a team that was only two games under 500. If the Rangers think they can contend with what they have by spending a lot of money, 
All the Tigers need to do is spend a decent amount of money. They have a roster that was just two games under 500, and it was basically made of all prospects and rookies. So when you take that into account, you bring the prospects up, they have their kind of half year where they get their legs under them in the major leagues. Now they're going to have a full year next year that will be their first full year, but after they have almost nearly a full year of experience in the MLB, uh, that including Akil Badu, they have Spencer Torkelson, who's the number one, I believe the number one overall prospect right now. Uh, at least he was the number one pick a few years ago for the Tigers, uh, that, who has been playing really, really well in the minors. You can bring him up a little bit early if you want to contend. Uh, and, and just overall, I think the Tigers had enough that if they just spent to get kind of two top-level guys, they have a good veteran, Miguel Cabrera, to kind of keep the team like steady locker room-wise. And I think that's really all you need when you have these such talented prospects and just overall a good, well-put-together roster. They're a very well-rounded roster. They have a lot of, they have a decent amount of power, they have a decent amount of speed, and they have a decent amount of just overall potential and everything else. Um, so Javi Baez, shortstop, six years, $140 million, and Eduardo Rodriguez, starting pitcher, five years, $77 million. Neither of these deals are over, are, are really that much money. Neither of them are over $25 million per year, which is kind of the mark of, I'd say, a huge, huge deal. Uh, they're not, none of these guys are getting what Corey Seager or Marcus Simeon are, are getting. So I think overall, even though they're big names, they didn't even necessarily get crazy all-star level. Well, I mean, they are both all-star level, but they didn't get necessarily, uh, MVP and Cy Young candidates. And they also didn't spend on them like they were. So they still have some money left over. And really, as I said, their roster is made up of a lot of prospects and a lot of those kinds of guys. They can get some more guys and kind of the John Gray area of free agency to kind of really solidify the roster, the Cole Calhoun, Mark Canna, that type of signing. They can make a few more of those and really make this roster really, really good and stack it with veterans to, to supplement the prospects that they have. All right, and finally, uh, your last least surprising big spender, I think he has the Giants. Yeah, I mean, I think the Giants, they had such a good year last year, and they really, that wasn't even the year they were expecting to contend. They were building a roster that would be good when they added more into it this year, and they didn't even need to do that, uh, or this offseason, I should say. They didn't even need to do that. They had the best record in the league without having their quote-unquote big spending year, but they still bring back Brandon Belt on a qualifying offer, which is pretty good value for him. Uh, they bring back Anthony DiSclefani on a three-year, $36 million deal. They bring back Alex Wood on a two-year, $25 million deal. And then because they lost Kevin Gosman, which we'll talk about later a little bit, uh, they, they brought in Alex Cobb for two years, $20 million. But overall, pretty much the same rotation. And Gosman did not have the strongest second half of the year. So I don't see this team falling off too much. Alex Cobb is not a one-to-one replacement for Gosman. But he is not so much worse that this team should be losing a bunch of games that he's starting that they wouldn't have if Gosman was starting. And they still have Logan Webb, who is now their solidified ace. They have a very good uh, one through five. They have they have really good one through four starters, and they have a and they have a fifth start. They have plenty of fifth starters they can go to as options. And they also were able to re-sign most of their bullpen guys. They also got Austin Slater back. They got John Brebbia back. They got Erlene Garcia back. And one of their most surprising guys, I think, out of the bullpen was Camilo Duvall, who's a young prospect, and he's not going anywhere for a while. Well, we'll see with the new CBA what might happen with that. But for now, it doesn't look like he's going anywhere for at least five years. Um, but the Giants have a good, have a lot of good young players along with these free agents that they're now adding. And I think just overall, they're a well-rounded roster, and they didn't really lose much this offseason. So they will be back. They might not be 106 wins again, uh, because I think... 
I think, frankly, well, maybe not the Padres based on what they've done in the offseason, but I think the Dodgers will come back and be better as long as they're not as injured. And I think now the target is kind of on the Giants' back, so they might they might see a little bit of a regression, but I could still see them easily as a, a 95 to 100 win team, uh, especially with what they have. Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I'm confused but about what they did. I mean... And keep in mind, free agency isn't over. They still true. have money, and I think they still it might. It seems to me like they they spent they they spent a lot of money to get a lot of mediocre starting pitchers. Well, I, but they that's what they did last year, and look right. how it worked out yeah, for them. And now they're not even considered mediocre because of what they, they did lost for them. Their second best pitcher. Anyway, we'll see. And Alex Wood, to me, he's always been kind of an up and down guy. Um, we'll see. We'll see if it works out for them. And again, like you said, it's only the beginning of free agency. And I will say they were looking for Starling Marte, and they were big in his market. They've said some weird things about why they don't necessarily like Chris Bryant for the money that he's going to get somewhere else. So I guess they're technically not in the market for him anymore. But even if they're not, uh, or even if they thought they weren't, uh, now that Marte has signed with the Mets, they might be back in the the Chris Bryant market. Uh, we'll see what happens there, but. They have plenty of money because they 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 are they're willing to operate at a much bigger budget than what they're spending right now. So they easily can make another splash in free agency. There are still a few big names out there that they could sign. I could even see them making a move for Trevor Story. Definitely Chris Bryant in that conversation, obviously because he played for them last year too. So don't be surprised if they make some big moves with their lineup. And already, I think their lineup's already good enough. Uh, obviously, replacing Buster Posey is going to be hard, but. Top pro- top catching prospect Joey Bart, and also have Kirk Casale still. So I'm not really worried about any of the of, about any of their replacements. All right. Well, who was who's been surprisingly quiet so far? The Yankees made one signing, and it was Jolie Rodriguez, a relief pitcher, Ooh. for one year, two million dollars. And the funny thing was, as I said to you earlier when we were writing this, and you were like, "Wait a second, who did the Yankees even sign?" They traded Rodriguez to the Rangers in the Joey Gallo deal and are now re-signing him as a free agent in the offseason. So basically, they traded, let's just say they threw away they threw away a pitcher's second half of the season, got him back to for two million dollars, and got Joey Gallo back. So I guess I, I guess the one thing is that they, they now have gone through a cycle of Joey Rodriguez and all they've done is spend two million dollars, pretty much. Uh, which is very, very bad. <laughs> you you assume that if they liked him so much, they could have just dealt another reliever that they maybe wouldn't need to re-sign. Um, but overall, I think the Yankees only signing one player is crazy. I mean, the Angels have Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, and even they have already spent more. They already have two, they have two more pitchers than the Yankees have pitch, <laughs> pitching signings as they signed Michael Lorenzen and they signed, Mar- and they signed uh, Noah Syndergaard. So... A little bit of tangent on the Angels there because we're not going to end up talking about them. But, yeah, I mean, I I think all the Yankees fans are very surprised that they didn't spend anything. And I think everybody in with knowledge of the baseball so world far. is also very surprising that so they haven't far. done anything. Yeah, and, I mean, one of their main targets or one of the main targets that people were talking about them getting uh, was Carlos Correa. And I have been a person who has said the whole offseason that they're going to get either Carlos Correa or Corey Seager. But Corey Seager's off the market, and now, since the Rangers also took Marcus Simeon, now everybody who wants a shortstop wants Carlos Correa. Yep. So it's a little bit harder to sign him at this point. And frankly, with how much their fans don't like him, I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't end up doing it. But at the same time, they got to spend their money somewhere. Yes. All right. Well, uh, who did exactly what you expected so far? Well, the Dodgers let Scherzer and Seager go, which I think could have been predicted. They tried to get Scherzer back, but it just didn't work out with how much the Mets were willing to pay him. Uh, they re-signed Chris Taylor, four-year, $60 million, right before the lockout happened. And also, 
Kenley Jansen and Clayton Kershaw can still be re-signed, so I think that they're Dodgers for life, and I think they're just going to work for as long as they can to get a deal done. I mean, you're not hearing any reports or rumors about their potential markets or anything. Frankly, I haven't heard a word about either of them. I'm just... I'm just knowing being about Kershaw till his medical condition is is better now. Yeah, but I'm just just being a Dodgers fan. I just know that the Dodgers aren't going to let them go. Uh, I think the fact that they didn't make a huge run at Scherzer or Seager also indicates that because the money that they would have spent on getting uh, any one of those two back easily can be redistributed into Kershaw and Jansen split between the two. And frankly, if they give <laughs> if they give Kershaw and Jansen the money that that Scherzer alone is getting. They'd be overpaying them. So I think you're going to see both of them in around the 15 to 20-ish million dollars per year on really short deals uh, because they are old players. But I think beyond that, I- I'm not surprised of what the Dodgers have done so far. And they also signed Andrew Heaney one year, $8.5 million, just to get a little bit more insurance. Obviously, last year, tried to get uh, Danny Duffy, and he didn't end up pitching at all. Uh, and then also tried to get... Um, Cole Hamels, who also didn't end up pitching, so and that kind of spiraled into the playoffs and snowballed, and the Dodgers really were lacking starting pitching by the end of the year, even though they thought they had way more than enough. But well, injuries just rattled it, and 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 Trevor, Trevor Bauer's Bauer. situation also was an issue with that. But overall, they need somebody at the back end of the rotation like Andrew Heaney, who can be a, a good fifth starter where. You can deal with one injury and have good guys there. You can move Tony Gonsolin in and out of the bullpen pretty much at free will as long as uh, as long as uh, Dustin May is able to come back. Then you have a solid rotation. So uh, we'll see what the Dodgers do with Heaney. He's probably going to end up as a fourth or fifth starter, but I assume the Dodgers would sign kind of one mid-level guy and then just get Chris Taylor back and then hopefully get Kershaw and Jensen back. So I think they've done what I've expected them to do so All far. All right, what teams had the most confusing approaches to you? I think it's very, very odd. The Blue Jays made a great signing by getting Emi Garcia for two years, $11 million, I will say. But it's very odd that they re- that they signed Kevin Gosman for five years, $110 million, while the Mariners got AL Cy Young winner and Blue Jays pitcher from last year, Robbie Ray, for five years, $115 million. Why would you not stick with the same player for $1 million more each year, I don't know. It, Maybe he didn't want to stay in Toronto. I was about to say, unless it's that Robbie Ray really wanted to get back, I don't know if it's something about being in the U.S., which well, is tax, a fair taxes claim. Are, but Taxes are a lot higher in Canada. Well, okay, I, I don't know about all yeah. that stuff, but I, I will say, and uh, I mean, but again, whether whether that might be the issue, but I would think that it would be easier to for them to re-sign him. And any, anyway, I don't think I heard that much about them making that much of a push for him in general, which was surprising. Um, but overall, if those are the issues, then I guess it's a little less confusing, and we'll we'll have to see if maybe he would make comments on that. But uh, and I know he does have a few young kids, so maybe maybe he likes the U.S. schooling system better for whatever reason. Uh, who knows what it comes down to? There's obviously more than just playing on good baseball teams. So uh, I guess if that if the if the factors are not on the field, then that makes a little bit more sense. But if they had the chance to re-sign him, it's very weird that they didn't. Um, but moving on from that, I'll go to the Red Sox. Jackie Bradley Jr. had the worst year of his career offensively and is and has a larger contract than Hunter Renfro. And the Red Sox traded prospects and Hunter Renfro for Jackie Bradley Jr. Or sorry, they traded Hunter Renfro for prospects and Jackie Bradley Jr. And as everybody is saying... 
Jackie Bradley Jr. is owed two more million dollars than than Hunter Renfro. They basically just bought two prospects for two million dollars, uh, and then got a huge downgrade offensively in the outfield. Jackie Bradley Jr. is a great defender, but Hunter Renfro also led the league in outfield assists. So technically, if you want to go by the very simple stats, he has the best arm in the league right now. So when you want to talk about defense, they might as well be the same player defensively. And Jackie Bradley Jr. cannot hit how Hunter Renfro can hit. So, or at least he hasn't been able to do that recently. So uh, it's really, really confusing. And I guess they also signed Rich Hill, James Paxson, and Michael Waka. I think all of them to one-year deals. So I guess they're just trying to say, you know what? We had some starting pitching issues, so let's take Eduardo Rodriguez, and he's gone. Let's just take three different guys and see if any one of them can be decent so that we have a real rotation next year. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I'm not too high on any of those three. Probably highest on James Paxton of all of them. Uh, But overall, just a little bit weird from the Red Sox, and I thought they would make a big splash before kind of going down to these little tiny signings afterwards, so it's very weird. All right, anybody else? It's got to be the Astros. They haven't signed anybody. Carlos Correa is still on the market, and the weirdest thing of this whole uh, lockout situation is that now that we know that the players can't talk to the owners and they can't make deals anymore, at least until the lockout is over, uh, Justin Verlander was reported to have a two-year $50 million deal, but it's never, it was never made official. And at this point, it's been like two or three weeks since they reported that deal. And since it's not official, it seems like it might have fallen through. And a lot of people are reporting on it and trying to figure out what's going on because wh- why? Everybody, Maybe I mean... it's medical. Maybe it's physical. It's It could be physical because he did miss all of last year after all. But if they had the agreement down and they had a deal in place... I don't understand how they would have let it go slip through in a two-week window before the lockout, knowing that the lockout was probably going to happen. It, it just seems very, very fishy and odd that they let the deal kind of just... Well, they didn't they didn't sign it, and they've had two weeks to sign it and didn't. It's strange, uh, and that's, again, it's confusing. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up our look at Major League Baseball Free Agency pre-lockout edition. Let's now turn our attention to college basketball. Let's start with the biggest upsets from last week. Well, I will start with uh, the most surprising one by far, I think. Uh, Dayton beat number four Kansas 74-73, and no, Dayton did not have Obi Toppin come back and take some of his remaining eligibility left in this game. Yes, this was the 2-3 and three Dayton team that beat Kansas. Dayton isn't good this year. The A-10 isn't good this year. Crazy upset, but I guess Kansas is still good because when you look at other teams in the country, like number nine Memphis, who lost to Iowa State 78-59, there aren't many good teams who haven't been upset this year, Uh, and there are some more of them that we can talk about. A lot of top 10 preseason teams that have not looked good, including Illinois. They've already gotten through all the upsets, though, to to the point where now they're unranked. Uh, But then uh, an upset that maybe wasn't entirely surprising, but uh, I think Interesting to see. Number five, Duke beat number one, Gonzaga, 84 to 81. Whenever I hear the phrase Texas is back in football, I just think of the fact that Duke never has to say those words because they just, even in the years where they're not good in basketball or not supposed to be one of the great Duke teams of all time, they still find a way to do stuff like this. They're always going to be ranked number one at least once in almost every season. I mean, last year might be the one caveat to that. And uh, Coach K is on his way out, and this Duke team is balling out to make sure that he gets a good send-off, although we'll talk about what happened maybe a little bit later uh, in that week. 
Uh, then Northern Iowa, and by the way, again, not Northern Iowa that was uh, everybody's upset pick in the 6-11 tournament game a few years ago. Uh, a 2-3 and three Northern Iowa team beat number 16 St. Bonaventure 90-80. to St. Bonaventure done a pretty good job of taking care of bad teams so far, and I guess it was time for them to have their one slip-up after also beating some good teams too. Uh, Ohio State upset number one Duke 71-66 to in the first game of the Big Ten ACC Challenge. That is one hell of a way to kick off an a-, a Big Ten ACC Challenge, uh, and really actually kind of wasn't a sign of things to come because none of the rest of the games were upsets, to be quite honest. Um, but overall, both the conferences not living up to the standards that they have in the past. The ACC had the most tournament teams ever in a tournament, I believe, two years ago, uh, and the Big Ten had their own personal record and tied for second most all-time last year. And now both of them, I think, have six or seven teams ranked combined and well, one of them is going to be slipping from the rankings that later in the week anyway. But uh, overall, not exactly great years for either of these teams. But a good upset by uh, Ohio State to kind of get them get their uh, get their students' minds off of football season. Yeah, I think I think uh, Duke paid the price for the Duke basketball paid the price for Ohio State football losing to Michigan football on Saturday. Well, I don't think I, I think the football <laughs> gods and basketball gods work separately. But I will tell you that. Uh, you beat Gonzaga most often. You're probably going to have down. a letdown yeah. week or yeah. letdown game the game after. Definitely. And uh, I think just overall riding such an emotional high, they're not going to end up. They don't. They don't end up winning on the road against, uh, frankly, a talented team. And by the way, Ohio State was probably pretty upset that they got knocked out of the rankings because I don't really think they deserve to be knocked out of the rankings for how they played last week, losing a beating Seton Hall in a close game, who somehow are still ranked. Uh, and also, I think they lost one game to Florida that was also a really close game. I don't think they should be unranked, so they were probably upset well, about them themselves. They'll probably be ranked now. Yeah, and they definitely will be ranked now. Uh, moving on to a team that won't be ranked, Utah Valley State beat number 12 BYU 72-65. to This is a little bit... crazy. Well, I will say there is actually kind of a reason that this happens. BYU got a lot of praise for a big win over Oregon... But as we've gotten a little bit later into the season, I think we all know Oregon just isn't good. Uh, they're 40, uh, beating any major conference team by 42 on the road is still impressive. But Oregon is, it feels more like a, a, a like a 20 point win against a barely unranked team than it does a 40 point win against a top 15 team at this point, now that we've distanced ourselves from it. And BYU had just played their annual rivalry game at Utah. Uh, on Friday night and came back and played this game at, at Utah Valley at Utah Valley State. I guess we know who the best team in the state of Utah is. Um, so I'm not actually surprised, kind of in a similar way to the Ohio State and Duke situation where one team's kind of riding a huge win that they end up losing the next game. BYU will figure it out by the end of the year. They're going to lose a few games, and frankly, this is probably less of a surprising loss than it will be when they lose to some random team in the West Coast Conference, like Santa Clara or somebody like that, or Loyola Marymount or some some team that's not supposed to be that good. But moving on from that, 2-5 Georgia. Yes, 2-5 Georgia. This is by far the biggest upset. This is why I was going to say I don't care about Utah Valley State. 2-5 Georgia. Beat number 18, Memphis, 82-79. Keep in mind, Memphis, before losing to Iowa State, was ranked in the top 10. They had the top two overall prospects in the 2021 class. And by the way, I will say, those recruiting rankings have come to mean absolutely nothing when you look at the teams who the top players have played for. Uh, cough, cough, Michigan. Uh, Oklahoma. experience is what's paying off. And, and again... Georgia doesn't have any experience either, and their best players are long gone, long off the team. And and by the way, a lot of them also transferred to other schools like Kentucky. 
uh, with Severe Wheeler. So, look, Georgia does not have that much experience, and they even have a newer coach. And by the way, they're 2-5. and five. I don't care how much experience yeah. they have. It'd be one thing if they were a 6-0 team that had experience and was playing well, but it just were still unranked. They're just not very good, and they still won won this game. So that was really, really surprising. At least Utah Valley State was 7-1 and one heading into the game. Uh, Oklahoma, another team who, this is kind of what I was saying with the Georgia thing, beat number 14 Florida, 74-67. Oklahoma was 6-1 and one coming into the game and has a new coach. People are doubting them because Lon Kruger is gone, but Porter Moser is the upset king. We know this from, from his run at Loyola Chicago beating number one seed Illinois last year in the tournament and making the Final Four as an 11 seed with them, uh, however many years ago that was at this point. So he's good at pulling off upsets. And by the way, he's a great coach. They're, Oklahoma has a good program. Uh, overall, they just have a good enough team that's p- capable of pulling off upsets like this. Again, this is an experienced team that's 6-0 and in that 6-1 and territory where they, don't, they haven't played enough good teams to be ranked. But they also haven't played bad teams close. They've been blowing out everybody. They've been taking care of their business. They just needed their one big moment to burst onto the scene. This is it. That's not like Georgia, who was 2-5 and five before their game. All right, well, we just went through eight upsets with uh, seven of them being unranked teams beating ranked teams. So pretty crazy. Let's, uh, let's now go to close games and other important games uh, in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Yeah, there weren't many close games outside of the upsets, actually, in all of college basketball this week, so figured we'd just condense it all into the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Starting with Iowa beating Virginia 75-74 to uh, on the road. A very good win. Uh, it's hard to beat Virginia on the road. Frankly, any team in the Big Ten or ACC at the top, it's hard to win on the road against almost any of these teams that we're about to go through. Uh, and Iowa pulled off a pretty uh, tough task. I mean, we even saw that Duke couldn't even beat Ohio State on the road, and they are number one in the country. Uh, Illinois beat Notre Dame 82-72. to Close game. Has some significance. Illinois needed to get back kind of in their winning ways against a good team. Notre Dame's not exactly a top-level team, but they're good enough. They're probably going to be a tournament team by the end of the year, or at least be on the bubble. Uh, number two, well, they will be number one by next week, and they should have been number one already. Number two, Purdue beat Florida State 93-65. to Let it be known, Purdue is the best team in the country. I have nothing else to say about it. Experience and young talent. But none of the young talent are freshmen except for one player. That is the key to produce success. So, and by the way, it's not a player that they got for talent. Caleb First is a player who fits their system very well. And they have super seniors galore on their team to, to, to supplement the, the, the all-sophomore lineup that they have. Uh, then Syracuse beat Indiana in double overtime. I'm not even mentioning, I think, two overtime games that happened in the Big Ten ACC Challenge because of the teams that were in them. Uh, but Indiana, this is the type of game that they probably need to win if they want to make the tournament. They missed the tournament because of losses in games like these in the last few years. That's the reason why they haven't been in it. Uh, Rutgers beat Clemson 74-64. to Both of these teams really need to really want to get, uh, get back into their own winning ways, and uh, I, Rutgers gets the win here, so that helps them a lot. Uh, North Carolina beat number 24, Michigan, 72-51. to As I said, recruiting rankings don't matter. Uh, really, I mean, Musa Diabate was crazy in the first half of this game, but Michigan cannot find a way to get the ball to their post players, and that is on the guard play. They do not have Xavier Simpson. They do not have any of the guards that they've had in the past who have been so great. They don't have Mike Smith. Uh, and the Devonde Jones experiment, he is not exactly. Michigan got what they should have known they were getting, a score-first guard, the system of Michigan does not work very well without a pass-first guard, I think. As I said to a friend, Michigan got Michigan got a Steph Curry instead of a Chris Paul, 
And Steph Curry would look not he wouldn't look terrible, nor would Chris Paul in any system because they're just so great. But stylistically, you get a little bit of a downgrade when they're not playing around the right players. And Michigan kind of has that situation. And I think they really do. And, and if you take Eli Brooks as a point guard, then all of a sudden you have no ability to hit a three in a single game at we'll all. see what happens when Zeb Jackson gets healthy and maybe some of the younger guys can play the point. Yeah, I mean, right but... Right now they're a mess. And, and just overall, it just seems like no one really is acclimated turn to over, the system. Turn and, everything they didn't use to do. And, and just overall, Hunter Dickinson can't get the ball. Musa Diabate can't get the ball because of the fact that there is no guard play. And also... As I've talked, as as is not really the most mentioned uh, most mentioned topic in basketball, spacing is really really important. So when your best lineup is playing two big men who don't really shoot very well from outside of the from outside of really the paint, you're not going to have a good time, especially when you have nobody who is who is putting any fear into the other team from shooting from three. Michigan does not have three point shooters other than Eli Brooks. So you have one guy that you have to stay on at the three-point line, and everybody else can just help in the post. So it's really impossible to start getting the ball into the post, and that's really the problem that Michigan is having. Also hurts not having a 6'10 guy who who has a, an over-seven-foot wingspan who can also run the point, that being Franz Wagner. So Michigan's missing a lot of talent that they've had in the past, and overall, just it's not really clicking. On the other hand, North Carolina has a lot of scores and a lot of talent, and even after they lost a lot of talent, they've been able to replace it. They're under a first-year head coach. Give them some time to turn it around. This might be a game that really they look back at from early in the year. I could see them stringing off a bunch of wins in a row, maybe pulling off an upset, maybe beating Duke, depending on how early they play them. And that might be kind of the catalyst for them becoming a really good team this season. Uh, moving on from that, number 22, Michigan State beat Louisville 73-64. to Hard-fought game by Michigan State. If you watch this game, you understand why I and a lot of other people who, who watch a lot of Big Ten basketball are very high on the Michigan State team. I, they're better than most of the teams who are ranked ahead of them. I think the only reason they aren't ranked so high is because they played in a really good Maui Invitational feed, fee, field and lost one game there. Uh, but overall, I really think they are a good team. And, uh, I mean, they only lost to Baylor in that field in the championship game. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's on paper that they are a very good team. Uh, and overall, Louisville's not going to be terrible either. It's a good win by a good team for Michigan State. Uh, NC State beat Nebraska 104 to 100 in four overtimes. Not much to say about that game other than the fact that four overtimes. Uh, Virginia Tech beat Maryland 62 to 58, and Maryland fired their coach. So uh, goodbye to Mark Turgeon after ten very very successful seasons and a Big Ten title, many tournament appearances, a memorable tournament run with uh, Mello Trimble, if anybody remembers that name, uh, and really just overall a really surprising early season coaching exit. Uh, mostly because you don't see college basketball coaches get fired this early into the season, and also not on teams that really, I mean, they're not even struggling that that much, but I'll leave it to Maryland. I don't know what their plans are. We'll see who they end up hiring. Uh, but, Brian Kelly. Well, that's not going to happen, but uh, he's at LSU now, uh, and he also has a Southern accent now. True. But other than, I mean, Brian Kelly. I don't know what Maryland is doing. We'll, we'll have to see. I mean, uh, the, the start of the season hasn't been great, but... I wouldn't put that on Mark Turgeon's coaching because he's been a pretty damn good coach for a long time. I don't think that a beginning-of-the-season struggle really makes him a bad coach. Uh, but Virginia Tech is a tough team that's capable of getting tough road wins, especially when they can shoot, when they can only make nine threes and not even shoot a great percentage and still outscore the other team by 24 points from the three-point line. Maryland's just got to make a shot. That has nothing to do with coaching. 
All right, well, that ends our look back at college basketball for the week, and that ends this century edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please join us for our next podcast, which will be on Monday, December 6th, where we will see the accuracy of Patrick's weekend predictions and discuss the weekend's college football conference championship action and the NFL action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his weekend predictions that were posted yesterday and the 13th installment of our college football top 25 poll that was posted on Tuesday. And finally, an updated NCAA tournament bracket that will be posted on Saturday. All of that on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.